do keep uh, Hebrews 10 open in front of you. Uh, Let me ask you, have you ever had someone offer you this choice? I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Yeah, some of you have. And among us, there'd be people uh, for different reasons who fall into either camp, you know, that give me the good news first, give me the bad news first. This could even be a question on a psychology test, couldn't it? You know, who falls into which camp? What does that tell you about them? Personally, I'm keen to get the bad news out of the way first once you've told me there's bad news coming rather than put it off and then embrace the good news. And uh, as it is, since I'm preaching today, I've got good news for you and I've got bad news, but I'm not going to ask you which you want to hear first. We're going to do the bad news first so we understand just how good the good news is. And the bad news is guilt. Uh, Isn't that an experience that's shared as part of our very humanity? Isn't it an unwelcome companion we each have to host? Uh, What has been your experience of guilt? Uh, Have you, like me, felt guilt for what you have done? Or perhaps guilt for what you haven't done that you should have done. Perhaps you felt guilty for things others have heard you say or found out you did. Uh, Perhaps your guilt is hidden guilt because you couldn't bear the thought of anyone else knowing what you did. And yet, as bad as all that seems, guilt is actually worse than that. Because we know we... This is an experience we feel between our, not just ourselves and other people, but one that stands between us and God. Uh, he is the holy God, the one set apart from sin, who detests our sin. And so we can't come into his presence without failing, falling under his judgment, without perishing in death. As we'll read in Hebrews next week, it is a dreadful thing, 10 verse 31, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so guilt, guilt is our terrible companion in life, which reminds us of our sin, which undermines any hope of coming into the presence of the good God, which warns us of our danger, but offers no way of avoiding it. At least, guilt would have that place if God hadn't done something extraordinary about it. You see, as I said, it's only in light of the bad news that we can fully appreciate the good news. And the good news for us, what Hebrews 10 is saying to us today, is that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He is the one who takes away our guilt. He has done everything that needs to be done so we may be forgiven and guilt-free. And His sacrifice was so powerful, so effective, that no other sacrifice is needed ever. Today in Hebrews 10, God is going to speak to us and I urge you carefully to listen to, reflect on and remember what he says. You can be guilt-free. Draw near to God Though he is awesome in power and pure in his holiness, you need not fear God. 
You need not worry about trying to hide away your guilt or earn your way into his wonderful presence. And it is all because of what Jesus has done for you. How do we best grasp the enormity of what Jesus has done? Well, let me read again uh, for us, starting in verse 1 of Hebrews 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, uh, but not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshippers would uh, uh, have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. You see, the key foundation we need to understand here as we spend time in Hebrews 10 is only sacrifice can free us from our guilt of sin. This is set up throughout the whole Old Testament and from the very earliest chapters after people fell into sin, it's clear that even as God's holiness is so apart from sin and can have nothing to do with it and would destroy us in death, the sacrifice of one in the place of another is the God-given way we can live in his presence and experience forgiveness. So when God led Israel out of Egypt and promised to dwell among his people, sinful though they were, what did he do? Well, he gave them the laws surrounding sacrifice for sin so that the unjust could be treated as just, so the unholy could be treated as holy, and so the unclean could be treated as cleansed. There are all different ways that that use of language of capturing the God who could not dwell with sinful people, again having restored us in relationship to himself. And so you would have picked up uh, in Hebrews, God gave Moses instructions for building the tabernacle and for priests and instructions for priests to sacrifice on behalf of the people and for the high priest who, with his role to go into the most holy place only once a year alone to appear before the ark and presence of God. And everything to do with that whole sacrificial system, it's spelt out. It is not for us to decide how we relate to God as his people, but for him to instruct and lead us in the way that it is possible. It's spelt out too that while it is costly and involves the death of one in the place of the other, there is a way. There is a way we can be guilt-free before God. But as the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, he draws a clear divide between, uh, when it comes to sacrifice, a divide between the way people had related to God and the way that ultimately we need to relate to him so we can be confident as we relate to him. And this way, this new way, first, is a better sacrifice. Uh, What does uh, the writer say in verse 4? The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. 
Now, on the one hand, <clears throat> and I expect you'd probably agree, that makes perfect sense. It's rational, isn't it? How could an animal that's not human, how could its death instead of mine take away my guilt for what I'd done or hadn't done in my relationship with God? On the other hand, the law of Moses certainly gives the impression that it would. That's where we see in pages like these, and perhaps this for you might be a revolutionary way of looking at and reading the Old Testament. You see, someone who's not a follower of Jesus and who doesn't trust that God wrote the Bible, they think it's a book about people trying to claw their way and reach their way toward the gods or God. When people talk about comparative religion, they'd be very quick to tell you that, yes, sacrifice is a very common element in human religions around the world. But what we're reading in Hebrews is Jesus didn't come to fulfill the religious yearnings of Israel and their emphasis on sacrifice by matching those categories. It's the other way around. Our God wrote the tabernacle and priestly service and sacrifice into the history and experience of Israel because of what he planned to do in Jesus. Here was the forerunner, but in Jesus is the climax. And so what he would do shaped what had to unfold. And so as we read in verse 1, the law, we're told, is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the reality themselves. The writer's saying, don't look to the law and its sacrifices for your confidence. It couldn't provide it. Look instead to Jesus, the Son. Years ago, I went on a trip to Africa for two weeks uh, to teach pastors a unit of the Moore College Correspondence Course. In fact, the unit was on the Old Testament. Uh, but it was uh, two weeks I was going to be away. It was the days before smartphones, uh, and so I took a printed photo of Louise and the boys with me. It wasn't as good as having them with me, I have to say, but as far as travel costs go, uh, it was an acceptable alternative. And, of course, you wouldn't be surprised I really missed them, and I'd look at that photo each day and seeing the picture reminded me of what they looked like and everything that we shared together and the joy that would come when we were back together again. Now, how stupid would I be if when I came back and was back together with Louise and the boys, if I kept looking at the photo, if I kept admiring it and thinking about them as I looked at it, when in fact I had them in front of me? Why hunger after the shadow when you can experience the reality? That's what the Hebrews, the first hearers of this word, needed to hear, even as they'd experienced the good law from the good God. It was God's word to them for the time of the old covenant, but God's word had been extended where Jesus, the reality, had arrived. And so his sacrifice is above and beyond the sacrifice that came before. It is himself, his own body and his own blood. As we read from verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. David showed us last week what was coming this week, didn't he? How chapters 8 and 9 and 10 are linked together, how they show us Jesus is not just a sacrifice, he's the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He is our high priest who enters into the heavenly presence of God and the offering, the sacrifice he brings is himself in our place. He takes away our guilt so we could be forgiven. I wonder whether you notice the words and phrases uh, that are repeated through the passage as, uh, as we heard Hebrews read out today. That's always a pretty good indicator of what the author is saying and of what we should particularly pay attention to and need to hear. We've already uh, zoomed in on sin and sacrifice and offering. The other one that's so important that really struck me as we, I read here is once... And once for all, Jesus died once for all time. It's there in chapter 9, verse 26, and again in 10, verse 2. And continuing in chapter 10, it's in verse 10 and 12 and 14. This is the other huge difference between the old covenant and the new that we're focusing in on today, between the shadow and the reality, between the old sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice. The old had to be repeated. His only happened once. And so come back to 10 verse 1 halfway through. For this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were a recurring reminder. No sooner had God, uh, God's people made the appropriate sacrifice for their sin, but they sinned again. They knew that they'd have to go and repeat the sacrifice again. And it's not that God's word wasn't powerful or effective, but that there was always the underlying sin problem, the problem with us, that the shadow was given by God to teach us that only the reality itself can solve. But Jesus' sacrifice is so effective, so spot on, so what we need, that it only needs to be made once. Listen to some of these great verses again. 9 verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Then in verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Our salvation, uh, making us perfect, being forgiven. We were talking about people being made perfect in church just the other week in Hebrews as well as in our our Vision Sunday sermon. It means being made complete being made mature. As we hear it here, it means sin-free and guilt-free and suitable to come before God in the loving relationship he always intended for us. So when we thought about guilt earlier, and even as we talked, I was conscious as we talked about how we feel, feel about guilt now as a thing not just in the past but part of our present experience as well. And, it, and as uh, our feelings of guilt about this or that or another thing may well have resonated, yet the take-home for today is that Jesus has made the perfect sacrifice to make us perfect and complete and forgiven so that we can be 100% sure and confident and certain that we have a new and lasting relationship with God. So then what do we do with the sins we still commit? What do we do with the guilt we may still feel? Bring them to the one who has already made the perfect sacrifice for them. Lay them at the foot of Jesus' cross. We know we still sin uh, until Jesus coming a second time. Perfection and completeness does not yet rule that out. But what it does rule out is God seeing us as sinners and treating us as guilty. That is no more. That is his choice. And he has done everything to make it so. Instead, the appropriate response for us today, and, and often when uh, we're hearing the word of God, there's, there's things that we need to do. We need to act in a particular way, respond in a particular way. But the particular thing we need to do today is to remember. Remember that Jesus has brought your forgiveness and taken your guilt away when you trust in him. And so we do that same thing that we did when we began on this journey with Jesus, when we feel guilt, when we need forgiveness. We turn again back to God, repentant and trusting in all Jesus has done. And so what I can say to you, what God is saying to each of us today is there is no sin that you or I can commit that catches God by surprise. And even if 
the guilt you feel and the depth of that feeling is the, like the deepest caverns of the ocean. Jesus has overcome it and by his sacrifice met it. Now others would say it's presumptuous before God to say what I'm saying today, to think what I'm thinking today. But isn't it here in the Bible? There are even Christian people and Christian churches that will teach and will model time and again the repeated sacrifice uh, through one form or another, uh, will teach people in a way that motivates people to try to work off their guilt, using their guilt almost, as it were, as a, uh, an implement against them, leaving their consciences in uncertainty, if not fear. What a travesty. And the accuser, Satan, he will be happy to remind you, remind me of the things we've done and the guilt we might otherwise bear. But remember, he is not the one who has the final say. And even you yourself, in your mind, you might, you might wrestle with, could it really be true? But let me say, as we trust the Lord Jesus, the wonder of it is we're not relying on ourselves to make this possible, but relying on him. Relying on the one who made the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. Relying on the one who, who himself was perfect and made us perfect and complete in him. And so we may unashamedly draw near to God by faith, forgiven, now his people in relationship with him. That, that my friends, is what we must remember today. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that today again you've placed before us Jesus in all his glory. Help us when we would forget to remember him, to remember his sacrifice, to remember your promise. Take our guilt away. May our feelings be aligned with the reality that you have brought about in him. Not that we might not have guilt, but that when we do, we might place it at the feet of Jesus. And we pray, Heavenly Father, enable us to rely on him in everything. And we thank you that we can and need not rely on ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.